You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host, Anne Levin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring interviews with key people on the ground in Ukraine and experts in medicine, arts, and foreign policy. I am your host, Anne Levine, from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Our guest, Sarah Ashton Cirillo, an American journalist who enlisted as a combat medic in the armed forces of Ukraine. She previously worked as a war correspondent, primarily for LGBTQ Nation. A trans woman, she is the only American woman known to be fighting at Zero Line. She described becoming a soldier, how she prepares for the trenches, and the difference between American and Ukrainian attitudes towards transgender people. Sarah spoke to us from under a tarp, outside her safe house in Kharkiv, 24 hours before her most recent deployment, during which she was hit by missile fragments. She is currently in hospital being treated for a large injury to her hand. Sarah, welcome to Ukraine 242. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, for your audience, if there's any strange noises, we are in a war zone and we're at the front line. So I do apologize in advance. Sarah, how did you go from journalist to soldier? Uh, What prompted me or what allowed me to go from being a journalist to being a uh, combat medic in the front lines of the war against the Russian invaders? Uh, Yes, Slava Ukraini, good night. (laughs) Sorry. Yes, I'm... I'm sorry about that. Not at all. <laughs> that was that going. was a fellow soldier, one of the guys on watch, who was just passing me uh, in the rain. So I began as a journalist here March 5th. So I arrived uh, just about eight days after the full-scale invasion took place. I was credentialed by the Armed Forces of Ukraine. And around a week later, made my way to Kharkiv, which was the center of the fighting at the time, along with uh, what was going on in Busha and Irpin. And Kharkiv was one of the hardest hit cities, if not the hardest hit city in the entire war thus far. And while I was reporting from there, I became very close with the military and security services. In fact, I was embedded with them to begin with. From there, I became a volunteer and eventually took on a position of outreach coordinator for a territorial district along the Russian border. And after that, and being around the the war for about eight and a half months, I had many long discussions with uh, some of my friends in the military, and it was decided that I should enlist and continue my work for the armed forces of Ukraine and the people of Ukraine in this fight for liberty and liberation as a member of the army and an enlisted soldier. As a combat medic, I was able to take my training and apply it to the frontline position where I'm at now, which is currently in the Donbass region. How do you get trained as a combat medic, which I assume means that you're a combatant and a medic? Absolutely. So just before I answer your question, so your audience can understand what you just pointed out, 
I go in with an AK-74, which is a smaller version of what most of the soldiers carry, which is an AK-47. So I carry an AK-74, three extra magazine clips fully loaded, and I'm also carrying my trauma bag. So ultimately, my job first is to join in the suppression of the enemy fire, and then it's to treat any casualties on either side. And that does mean having to treat the casualties of the enemy. As a medic, I understand that my first role outside of being a fighting soldier is to render aid when that's necessary. In my particular case, I had an extensive background in the healthcare industry. Okay, the connection dropped, but... Still here. Okay. So I was director of communications for a healthcare company that had locations in three Western states significant amount of theoretical knowledge. And when I came here to Ukraine, you begin to understand what you must do in a war setting. Even as a journalist, you want to be trained. And from that point, when I enlisted in the military because of my background, I went through a combat life-saving course, combat medic training, which is a standard that NATO soldiers go through. It's known as the PCCC training. And I passed that. And that's what literally gave me a certification as a combat medic in this war that's taking place against the Russian invaders. As for the other skills involved, I knew how to shoot prior to coming over here, and the rest meant uh, just learning to be a soldier over the past, you know, three and a half, four months. There was an extensive amount of on-the-job training, for lack of a better term, just living in a war zone as a journalist on the front lines of, of this war from March and April and May at the hottest points of it, and then through the terror attacks of the summer and the counter-attack by us against the Russians in, in September. And so all of that pieced together. If I would have come over here originally in March saying, hey, I'm, I want to fight or something, that would have been outrageous. Not only was I not prepared or understanding what war was, my mindset would have been completely different. But after living in Kharkiv between March and October when I enlisted, it really changes a person's perspective and understanding of, of what's necessary in order to preserve liberty and freedom across the globe. What have you learned or taken on that's enabled you to take others' lives for me, the war became very personal living in Kharkiv, living under this reign of terror. When I say reign, meaning both the reign in the sense of REIGN, but also terror raining down from the skies in the guise of artillery, uh, rockets, mortars, and drones dropping uh, parachute grenades, things of that nature. It became very personal for me as a citizen of, of Kharkiv. And so going into war, ultimately, I never want to see another dead soldier on either side. I want every death to be the last death that we encounter. The Russians could end this war by leaving Ukraine's sovereign territory and retreating back to their country. So it's not a question of what allows me to take a life. It's a question of what must be done in order to liberate Ukraine, bring back these 1991 borders, including Crimea, and allow democracy and freedom to flourish in a country that has been starved for it through multiple revolutions and a separation from Russia when the Soviet Union fell apart. 
it says in your Wikipedia that you were reporting primarily for LGBTQ Nation. I ended up signing with LGBTQ Nation after I came to Kharkiv, which would have been the middle of March. Had you reported in other war zones? No. What brought you initially? What brought me originally was that in 2015, I covered the Syrian refugee crisis, embedded uh, and traveling along the refugee route from Turkey through the Balkans, Serbia, um, Moldova, and into Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Austria, and across to the English Channel. And so I came over here to do a follow-up on this second burgeoning refugee crisis and to basically do a compare and contrast to see how the 25th... It's breaking up. Is this better? Yes. I I know where I was at. Absolutely. Eight or nine days after being credentialed by the armed forces of Ukraine, I was brought to Kharkiv with security services when I had the chance to embed. And it was at that time that I started writing for LGBTQ Nation. What was lucky for me, in a sense, if you're ever going to be lucky in a war zone, is that although I'd had prior disaster reporting experience, including in in the Syrian refugee crisis, along with having worked in Haiti and in other areas in Central America, I also spent nearly two months straight embedded with different members of, of the armed forces, different members of the security agencies here in Ukraine which allowed me to learn the ropes of war in a way that I couldn't if I was just on my own. And so that created a perspective both through the eyes of the military, but also allowing me as an individual to become used to a war zone. It was almost like basic training for a war correspondent. How has being a transgender woman journalist in war zones (laughs) been for you? I know there must be a lot to say about it, but I assume it's been okay. You've been at this for quite a while. I've now been here almost a year, 11 and a half months. And the most bizarre aspect of my gender identity in this country is that it is nearly a non-factor in anything that takes place. It's much more of a factor when it comes to journalists, many of whom are my friends, who are talking to me about it from the perspectives of their different countries and not just the United States, but Europe and Asia. And how must it be? Because it's unfathomable to most people that in the middle of an Eastern European country during a war under martial law, the gender identity would be a non-factor. However, I can count on one finger the amount of times I've been discriminated against professionally, either as a soldier or as a journalist uh, due to my gender. One time in one situation, it was a blatant discrimination. Every other time, it just never comes up. As a journalist, I was judged on my writing. As a soldier, I'm judged on my work in the battlefield. And as a volunteer, I was judged on how I was able to help the civilian community. One of the reasons that I continue to prolong my stay through the summer, even well before I joined the military, was because I was able to exist in a world where my work was the defining quality, not my gender identity, as it's unfortunately becoming the situation in the United States right now. It's easier to be transgender for me in Ukraine than apparently it is for many in the United States who are also trans. Wow. That's an extraordinary statement. Have you met any other transgender soldiers? 
I know of two others. One had been in the military and ended up in, we're referencing the Ukrainian military, Mm -hmm. one who had been in, in the military and ended up serving her time and, you know, leaving. And then another who's just coming out and who reached out to me. It's much more common to have lesbian, gay, and bisexual soldiers who are out in the military. One of the reasons is due to the fact that the medical care for trans people is just something that doesn't exist within the military structure. So if you don't have all of your hormones in line and you don't have the the medical necessities, if you are taking hormones as a trans person, which clearly some people don't, but if that's the route you're going, then you have to really have everything in order before coming out because there's not as we would know, uh, a medical system for the military. It's stretched thin when it comes to taking care of soldiers who are injured on the battlefield or going through other issues, and there just isn't space for that. So I believe the door is opening to trans people throughout this country, but it is busted wide open for the LGB part of the queer community in Ukraine, going so far as uh, seeing President Zelensky address gays and lesbians as in line for civil partnerships, which may not seem like a big deal in the U.S. where gay marriage is is acceptable, but it's a huge, huge step here. And he referenced, you know, uh, LGBT soldiers as being welcomed. And in fact, the Ukrainian embassy held a showing about a month and a half ago for LGBTQ soldiers. And there's even one non-binary soldier who is out, a young soldier who recently came out as non-binary and was welcome to stay in the army. I have seen some clips about you, unfortunately, from Russian news shows. Yes. What do you know about what they're saying about you? It dates back to April with my reporting. The notorious Maria Zakharova, who's the spokesperson for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, chose to publicly attack me in a statement. The statement was run by the Russian embassy in the U.S. and on the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs social media website. So it would be the equivalent of somebody attacking you from the State Department in the U.S., I couldn't believe that they even knew who I was. I mean, my public profile now is much larger than than it was at that time. From then on, I have been harassed, stalked, um, hunted by the Russians. And it became even worse once I enlisted. Uh, The Ministry of Defense here in Ukraine told me, be ready, Sarah, they're they're probably going to come at you 10 times harder. It's something we're aware of when I say we, meaning the armed forces and the security services here, but it doesn't stand in the way of of my service. And in fact, as it's been reported recently, when I got transferred to a very frontline position, what's known as zero line, I'm fighting the Russians. They're just on the other side of of a field from us in, in some trenches. We're fighting from a few hundred meters apart. And so when I showed up on Russian television in the clip, which actually was not a bad clip in, in, in what they were saying, it was not unexpected, but it adds a significant layer of security and understanding that I am a high profile target of the Russians as an individual because of what I stand for. I'm transgender. I'm from the US. I'm a journalist who believes in free speech and I'm fighting against them and their dictatorship and their terrorism. I'm outspoken enough and a public figure enough that I'm in their face all the time and therefore they've turned it back around on me. I am Anne Levine from WOMR Provincetown, Massachusetts. 
Our guest is Sarah Ashton Cirillo, an American journalist from Las Vegas, Nevada, and a combat medic in the armed forces of Ukraine. Thank you for joining us. Sarah Ashton Cirillo, you have a very interesting and perhaps unique perspective of being literally on the front line, but also having to zoom out when you're in a role as spokesperson or journalist, you're having to look at and comment on the war as a whole. Can you tell us as a journalist, what do you see happening now as we're heading into the second year? Where do you think it's going? I think we have about nine months to try to win this thing before our allies become a bit anxious in wanting to start looking at domestic policies more than this global war against a Russian terrorist. That includes the United States. We're going to be in the midst of a presidential campaign, especially by the fall. We know that although there's bipartisan support for Ukraine's war efforts, uh, we, we know there's some loud voices in D.C. right now that are pushing back against it. Some of the polling is is a little bit shaky. And so what I look at from a journalistic standpoint, from uh, doing my analysis, doing my memos, it's let's get all hands on deck right now. Let's make sure that everyone who loves freedom is contacting either their members of parliament or members of the House of Representatives, members of the U.S. Senate, in order to facilitate getting us the weapons we need to not only end this war and save lives, but to end this war so it doesn't drag on, especially into the U.S. presidential political cycle. Have you been to the United States since you left to start reporting on this war? Only the two weeks where I went back to Washington, D.C. in December, uh, where I met with uh, members of Congress and the State Department and, and other policymakers to try to facilitate aid to Ukraine. What did that feel like? What was that like to be back here? <laughs> I'm laughing, not at your question, but I thought it was going to be much worse when it came to <laughs> culture shock. Mm -hmm. However, because I was still working in my role as a member of the armed forces of Ukraine to the point that I was wearing my military uniform of Ukraine in the halls of the U.S. Congress, which was really a strange, that might be the second strangest experience besides fighting and living in a, a trench, that my mind was always focused on the war. So everything happening around me beyond the fact that rockets weren't coming down was still focused on the war. I noticed a very discernible difference in the fact that people had a bit of a calmer life. I'm not going to call it easier because everyone goes through their own struggles, but a bit more calmer life in the U.S., rightfully so. And priorities were different. That said, my job for those two weeks was to represent the armed forces of Ukraine and try to get us closer to victory. I think if I went back in a purely civilian capacity, I think it would have been much more difficult to adjust to the societal differences. Because I was there working, it was a bit easier. I didn't necessarily recognize any drastic differences beyond the fact that life was calmer. And, and I'm, I'm very happy for, for my fellow American citizens that they are not having to live with war on our territory. When you think about your future, do you think that you may come back to the U.S. to live? That, that's a great question because I'm not in the Foreign Legion. I'm, I'm a member of the Armed Forces of Ukraine uh, directly contracted. And when I say contracted, not as a mercenary, of course, meaning I have a military contract. Uh, I've sworn allegiance 
Putin to Ukraine. And that doesn't preclude me from coming back to the U.S. What it means is I'm going to be fighting this war until we have victory. At that point, what happens, I'm not sure. I do know that there are people who are willing to welcome me back right now with open arms just for the work I've done thus far. And that I do miss the United States. The, the United States is my country. As I like to say, I wear the flag of Ukraine, but I am an American. And one of the reasons that I'm willing to wear the flag of Ukraine is because I still believe in the values and ideas and ideals of the United States at its best. No one's going to claim that the U.S. is perfect, but at its best, what our ideas and ideals represent. And, and I see that flourishing in Ukraine right now. Professionally, I don't know what comes next. Uh, there's been many doors that have opened, and I've also given up a lot of opportunities by being here this this long. And it's just, with, this is going to sound so cliched, but it's about living day by day, staying alive, and making certain that we get to a point where I have to make the decision of where I'm going to be living during peacetime. Because until we achieve victory, um, there is no... There's no future except the next battle. And uh, as, as simplified as that seems, it's the reality of what we're going through here. How can this war be ended, in your opinion? Yes, we can achieve what I would call total victory. And we can achieve what I've coined as a transformative defeat of the Russian Federation. That road leads through Crimea. I served with the Crimean Tatars. I know how hungry they are to liberate Crimea. And once we liberate Crimea, the Russians are going to run away. And the house of cards, for lack of a better term, is going to collapse. So it can be done. It's not quite as easy as supporters of Ukraine may see on social media. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's coming at great sacrifice of many, many great men and women. However, ultimately, this is not going to be a war without end. And it's not going to be a war that ends in a stalemate. It's going to end with Ukraine's victory over a Russian tyrant and the Russian invaders. Sarah, you've been so generous with your time. And <laughs> I want to keep asking you questions, but I know you're, sure. you're leaving again soon, right? Yeah, about tw 24 hours from now, I'll probably be in a trench. Tell me anything you would like our listeners to know about following you, what your Twitter is, or anything to support you. Sure. So I'm very active on social media, especially Twitter. The handle is Sarah Ashton, L-V, Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, so Sarah with an H, Ashton, A-S-H-T-O-N, L-V, which stands for Las Vegas, so Sarah with an H, Ashton, A-S-H-T-O-N, L-V, same handle on Instagram. I am very responsive for people who may have questions or, or just want to follow what's happening day to day. When it comes to fundraising, especially within the United States where tax deductions matter, I recommend anyone who's interested go to Liberty Ukraine, Google uh, Liberty Ukraine, or I think it's libertyukraine.org. There are 5013C out of Austin, Texas and New York City. They are fully run by uh, what I reference as the Ukrainian resistance, but it's the Ukrainian diaspora who have done a phenomenal job in raising money. And I work with them. And when I flew to the U.S., I, I addressed them in both New York and Texas. They're a legitimate organization. If folks want to help, uh, go ahead and, and donate to Liberty Ukraine. 
And that will guarantee that not just my units, but every unit that needs help is going to get help here in, in Ukraine because it truly is an all-hands-on-deck, private-public battle to, to liberate this country. The last thing is we always use a song, and I'd like to know which song you would like us to use. Interesting. Um, uh, yeah, maybe No Surrender by Bruce Springsteen. Awesome. I love this. This was amazing. I'm glad we were able to do it tonight. And I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. <laughs> Thank you. To you, especially. <laughs> You're so the much. hero. <laughs> okay. Have a great night. You too. Bye. So, No Surrender by Bruce Springsteen. Surrender by Bruce Springsteen. Our thanks to Sarah Ashton Cirillo, American journalist who enlisted as a combat medic in the armed forces of Ukraine, having previously worked as a war correspondent in that conflict. A self-described recovering political operative from Las Vegas, Nevada, she was active in Nevada politics from 2020 to 2021 Ashton Cirillo drew national media attention in 2021 when she released records of conversations from her time working with Republican candidates, documenting efforts to recruit members of the far-right group Proud Boys as part of efforts to overturn the outcome of the 2020 United States presidential election. After witnessing the October 2022 Kyiv missile strikes, she resigned from LGBTQ Nation to become a combat medic in Ukraine's 209th Battalion Noman Chelebijikhan, a Crimean Tartar unit. Sarah's Twitter is full of intriguing messages and videos. Her handle is at Sarah Ashton LV. That's at Sarah Ashton LV. To see pictures of Sarah, go to Ukraine242.com. I am Ann Levine, the host and producer of Ukraine 242 from WOMR WFMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Editing, Ursula Rudenberg, recording, Michael Levine. Thank you for joining us. Until next week on Ukraine 242.